Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 92 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday evening, September 25th. I'm Bobby Chesney. Podcast night. Who are you? I'm Steve Vladek. Ah, you're a young looking man. Uh, I am I am three hours away from from uh, beginning my 40th trip around the sun. So yeah, I've got I've awesome. got I've got three more hours of being 38. So we might as well spend at least some of that recording a podcast. So I feel like if I'd known that earlier and I didn't, ha. I would have insisted we record at midnight and like do shots on the air at midnight. Yeah, because that's how I want to start my thirty. I want to start celebrating my 39th birthday by having shots at midnight. That's exactly in my office. That's exactly how. You that's should, pretty depressing. Yeah, that might help you with your lecture preparation for tomorrow. Um, so, are you, are you teaching on your birthday? I'm not teaching this semester. You, you right, have this. Yeah, you have this right, myth in your head right. that like I, I have. Well, like this but here's the thing, schedule. Dude, you're here all the time. Well, don't tell Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, where does she think you are right now? I'm heading over to Central Market uh, and Whole Foods. I'll be right back. Um, it would be—I mean—it would be funny if I actually had a social life and you know <laughs> was was actually out doing something legitimately social. She actually probably wouldn't mind if I was out doing something social. Recording a podcast—I don't know how she feels about I, that. I, th- I think we both have to admit this is a major part of our social life. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well said, sir. But yes. you, know, you know who—you know who's not listening to any of this. Karen. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whatever. I, I could be anywhere right now. I, I could, I could be. Um, I don't know where. I could be in San Antonio. Oh, that'd and be nice. She wouldn't know. So here's what I think. I think at least one listener is gonna like tip her off. Oh yeah. And say like, you should listen to the first few minutes because Steve's just going on about how he can get away with at Karen Vladek ESQ on Twitter. <laughs> and oh, if you're really nice man. to her, she'll tell you what her personal handle is. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. I won't say it. Nope. All right. Uh, what do we got today? We've got some uh, a, a random mishmash. It's a potpourri, if you will. Potpourri. Yeah. We did that. Wait, we did. We made that Jeopardy joke last week. Oh, we did, didn't we? Yes. It's a similar. We've, we've got some good material here. We've got a, a smorgasbord. A smorgasbord. Last nice. week was a potpourri. This week is a smorgasbord. Oh, that's good. Let's keep that going. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, uh, uh, Rod we have We're going to do a Supreme Court preview because the Supreme Court term is starting on Monday, apparently. Um, oh, yeah, that. Oh my gosh! Like so, Thursday right? Thursday is going to be quite a day. Oh yeah, no, it's going to be quite a year. But well, it's true. Thursday is going to be quite a year. That's episode title. Wait, question: Which is more tired? Saying <laughs> on Twitter, uh, "I'm old enough to remember when da da da," or such and such is going to be, or this has been quite a, and then give the wrong, you know, periodization. Like today was quite a month. I mean, I felt that way about Monday. No, no. I mean, a lot of times it's like the right thing to say. I just, I think it's funny. Like these are, these have become sort of Twitterisms the same way that in academic presentations, ending your sentence with right is, is also just something like we just all absorb. Hey, that's something I do all the time. Right. Wow. This podcast feels like a month. Now I'm going to hear that every time I say that. Um, so so Thursday, while all this other insanity is going on with the um, hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, Rod Rosenstein's, you know, meeting on the mountaintop with the president, um, we also get the Supreme Court's order list, which is usually a big deal, like the, the long conference like, order list. It's going to be like page B-16, if, 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 if anyone had pages. That's right. Um, anyway, so we're going to start with the Supreme Court preview because 
I feel the need to actually remind people that the Supreme Court does things other than weird, awkward it's not, pre- uh, yeah. press events on Fox News. It's not just it's not just a reality TV show. Uh, they actually have cases. It really shouldn't be. I mean, ugh, I know, I you're know. gonna get me started. I'm trying not to get you started. This this is a safe haven in which people who disagree about stuff can uh, you know won't, won't just won't just be called partisan hacks. Won't just become partisan hacks. This is the new thing that happens on Twitter. Like I say something, someone on the right disagrees with it and says, "Oh, that Vladik guy, he's a partisan hack." Why am I a partisan hack? Because you have a different view from me. Yeah. That, no. This is a curse in the bloodstream of the country uh, that. We're seeing all too much of this. I think you know, I've told you my, my theory of road rage and its relationship to Twitter. Um, there's a distancing and a sense of lack of accountability that's not even, I think, conscious. I think people who are totally normal by day, they get on the road, somebody cuts them off. They, they, they make a gesture or have a reaction that's just wildly out yeah. of proportion. Yeah. To the provocation, I think, especially when Twitter you're anonymous, en- Twitter enables this, yep. and, it, and actually, it's worse because you, especially if you feel that sense. There's no kind of at least on the road. There's like yeah. this off chance that person may like you know somehow force you to pull over and, and really make you accountable. No, no, listen, I, I always worry about. I mean, I, I as a New York driver, I have some choice feelings about how people in Austin drive. But I always worry that if I honk at the wrong person or if I make some gesture, it's going to be like one of our colleagues. Yeah. Uh, no, right? you know what? That is a real risk. Right. I'm not saying that it's happened to me, but I've definitely <laughs> had some close calls where I felt like, wait, how was I driving just then? Because, you know, that was that was the president of the university right there. <laughs> exactly so. So it's funny. It, it, there, Austin is not anonymous in a way that like. Oh, you know, it's funny, though. Neither is New York City. So I am fresh off the boat. I, I actually woke up in my hotel room on the Upper West Side at 3.30 this morning, Central Time. And so here I am. Uh, yesterday afternoon between, I'll, I'll tell you later on about what I was doing, but I stopped in because I could on the Upper West Side's Magnolia Bakery. Indeed. Because I needed a hummingbird cupcake. Mm. And it was so good. And so I'm sitting there like. <laughs> the village is better, but. Oh, okay. yeah, but I was, I was yeah. where I was. Yeah. And so I was stuffing this cupcake in my mouth. And I hear this, Professor Chesney? <laughs> and it was this, a, a guy who's a student in my cybersecurity class currently. And he was there. He had gone to New Haven for like this wedding. And him and his girlfriend had come into town. And, and he was like, what the hell are you doing here? All right. Well, here's a movie line for you. This is the smallest city of, you know, uh, what are the odds in a city of 7 million people you run into your ex, right? New York City is the smallest city of 7 million people you ever heard of. I do think it's true. I but mean, what I, movie is that from? Oh, I don't know. When Harry Met Sally. Is it? Yes. Oh, man, I haven't seen that in a long time. New That's York City on the is list. The, it's the smallest city of 7 million people you ever heard of. I think everybody who's lived there, and as you and I both have, you much more than me, but still both of us, has had that experience where you just keep running into people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so, anyways, run of the show. SCOTUS preview. Uh <laughs> Speaking of Rod Rosenstein, we've got uh, we've got this uh, rumbling about his possible departure. What and the it, hell was that? I don't know. We'll talk about what it was, but more importantly, we're going to remind everybody of stuff we covered earlier in the yes. show. Because the, apparently the entire DC press corps forgot all of this. The yeah. amount of incorrect information that oh, was yeah, going like, around. Who's in charge on next. Who's in charge next. I'm like... We did this already. You're like, I guess they just haven't, you know, it didn't sink in. I just wanted to be like, here's my tweet from April. Here's my blog post from March. Here's my op-ed. For, like, we've been yeah. through this. Well, the, we're gonna, the scenarios haven't changed. We are going to do it again. Woohoo! All right, what else do we have after that? You've Let's got some see. cyber land. Oh, the, the cybers were all the over the place last week. Um, and we have two different cyber strategies. There's actually some kernels of... Interesting things going there. It's not all cliches. And so I'm going to tell you what you ought to know and relate it to some actual law. 
And then um, actual law. Actual law. What else we got after that? We've so got we, have, some... we have a weird story from Guantanamo, right? Carol Rosenberg, as always, because find me a scoop from Guantanamo that isn't from Carol Rosenberg, and oh, I'll find you Carol Rosenberg in a hospital because she's sick, um, <laughs> right? Um, so Carol has the story about how the new judge in the 9/11 case um, is apparently floating some kind of proposal to host at least some of the pretrial proceedings um, in an appropriate facility, a SCIF, a secure compartmentalized inter- uh, information facility, somewhere in the D.C. area. Ooh, camel's nose under the tent? Well, so so there's, there's a, there is that question, which is, what are the constitutional implications of moving some of the proceedings into the U.S.? There's the related question of, well, wait a second, if you can't move the detainees, what are the constitutional implications of having pretrial proceedings at which they physically aren't allowed to be present? Well, some stuff to say. Well, some stuff to say. Okay, good. We, you know, we, the Milcoms never let us down. They really Dovey Mattis, I got to say, we have no do, do, no Dovey Mattis today. Well, I think the next Ash Report's due tomorrow. I know. We should have waited. Uh, no, I'm not recording. Well, actually, a, you're going out of town, and I'm not recording a podcast on my birthday. Exactly so. And uh, actually, that'd be pretty great, the birthday edition. Hey, everybody out there, send Steve happy birthday wishes. Should that be the podcast title? Steve's turning 39? It's Steve's birthday. It's Steve's oh, birthday. It's almost Steve's hey, birthday. Hey, Steve. It's your birthday. <laughs> God help me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Um, um, some National Security Division notes on some recent indeed. cases of interest relating to security. Uh, a trio of actually pretty interesting and somewhat bizarre ones. And then frivolity. Now frivolity. We, ha- we, have a, we have a major and a minor frivolity. So major frivolity, baseball major playoff league. preview. Man, see the connection? See what I did there? Yes, yeah. but then we have to do. Then we have to reiterate our old conversation about whether Major League Two is really better than Major League One, and whether Major League Back to the Minors is actually the worst third part to a trilogy Ooh. in the history of all movies. Okay, I can't remember if I said this before, but I will put Back to the Future Three up there for the worst compared to Major League Back to the Minors. Back to the Future Dude. Three is awful, man. Back to the Future Part Three is certainly the 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 trail runner in that relay, <laughs> but back to it's th- not the anchor. I can't believe that they even put the the name Major League on the fran- on the third movie. Mm. Anyway. Okay, all right. So I'm gonna have a I have a little time here to percolate with other horrible. Scott Bakula, what were you thinking? Oof. Um, so anyway, okay. we're gonna do baseball for volley. But speaking of movies, um, yeah. our friends up north. Hello. Right, Stephanie Carvey and Craig Forsez, right? They they suggested, or is it Stephanie's idea, that we talk about Ste- so pirate Stephanie movies. responded. I, I, I asked the audience uh, before we recorded, uh, we need some frivolity alternative topics, got to refresh the well there. And Stephanie weighed in, I think, at their awesome Canadian security law podcast. The Intrepid the Podcast. The Intrepid Podcast, which you guys got. If you listen to this, you should certainly listen to that. How about A? That? A, right? Um, they suggested uh, <laughs> uh, topic best all-time pirate movies. And we're going to have – we have some opinions that have already been exchanged. You, you, and I have, you and I have the exact same reaction exactly. to what the answer is. Exactly. Okay, so, and, we'll, and, so uh, stay tuned. Here's and, our preview. The, the star of the all-time great pirate movie is the Dread Pirate Roberts. There you go. And if you don't know what that is, then then then, then stop watch stop listening to us right now and yeah, go watch got the better Princess things Bride. to do. Okay. Awesome. Um, so should we start with our Supreme Court preview? Yeah, so I, when you mentioned this I thought, huh, A, I'd completely forgotten amidst all the craziness that they're actually uh, that they Supreme actually Court are gonna term. do stuff. And, <laughs> and then I thought, well wait, but we're not doing a general preview, it's sort of a security focused preview. And other than knowing about your petition that's pending or three petitions, petitions. I, I can't keep track Come of on, all man. your litigation. <laughs> Nor can I, which is a real problem. <laughs> um, I don't know what else might be out there, so I can't wait to be enlightened. Um, oh. So, first, give us the, the quick reminder let's front and center your because it's your birthday tomorrow. 
What are your three petitions about for the audience members who may be new to the show? Uh-oh. Um, where have you been? So um, the the petition that I think is most likely to be acted on sooner rather than later is the cross-border shooting case Hernandez versus Mesa, which raises two questions. Should there be a damages remedy um, if we assume for the purposes of motion to dismiss that the shooting was a violation of clearly established constitutional rights of which the officer should have known, um, and there's no other remedy for the parents of the victim, um, should the federal courts be able to recognize a damages remedy under Bivens? Um, and if not, is there a constitutional problem with the Westfall Act, the 1988 statute that takes away the state tort remedies that might otherwise have been available? Um, it was discussed, well, it was on the list to be discussed at the long conference yesterday, the big sort of catch-up conference the court has at the beginning of the term. We could find out as early as Thursday morning in the order list if they're granting it. Um, if, if it's a straight grant, that is when we'll find out. Yeah. If they're holding it for the Ninth Circuit case, the one which created the circuit split, we won't hear anything for a while. If they're denying it straight up, we'll probably find out next Monday morning when they issue the order list. So that's Fernandez versus Mesa. So I'm, I'm betting a, a relist. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, if I was ranking the odds, I think the most likely scenario is they sit on it until they figure, they, yeah. as they wait so, for... Well, so they can at least talk about it together, right. the Ninth Circuit case and the Fifth that's Circuit That's right, case. and the, the, I think the, the term, I think, is straight-lining when the court sort of takes a couple of cases and puts them together. So, you know, chances are we actually won't hear anything. Um, yeah. We'll just see that it was either, I think we'll see that it was rescheduled. Yeah. On, there'll be like a notation on the docket. Um, the other two petitions, so we talked about the one... Um, uh, in Larrabee about whether it's constitutional to court-martial uh, retired service members for offenses committed yeah, after they retire. very interesting. So the SG waived his response. Um, what does that signify? Um, <laughs> it's it's a great... So the SG does this, and it's really annoying. Um, so it's, it's the right of all respondents to waive a response. Yeah. The SG's waivers are not always, sometimes... Is it passive-aggressive? Yes. It's like, uh, I'm not, I don't need to respond to that. So sometimes it's because, come on, like this, yeah, this yeah. petition is is obviously not yeah, certain. You don't need me to. Yeah. So there's no question that there are some waivers that are signaled to the court, guys. This is beneath all of us. Um, you know, I don't know if the court's going to grant Larrabee, but I certainly will defend to a fairly well that it's a, a a plausible case for cert. Oh yeah, no, I think so. I think the big it's. There's two factors, right? There's there's the significance of the issue, or yes. two factors in my little <laughs> telling here. Significance of the issue, and then, like, is this even coming up? Is this a big deal? Right, right, right. Well, you know, it does come up. Yep. It doesn't, it, this doesn't present it in its most acute version yep. where you might have some speech related. Right. Your Article 88 stuff. problem. But boy, does that overhang it. Yeah. Well, so, and so just, you know, a, a waiver doesn't necessarily mean the court's not going to act. So in Dalmazi, um, the, the SG waived its response. Okay. Um, and the, what happens after a, a, a waiver of a response is the, the the petition is, quote, distributed, unquote, which means it gets sent around to the chambers, um, and any one justice can call for a response. Okay. Um, so I just got to hope that, you know, someone, some Supreme Court clerk is listening to this I was podcast. Say, like, with all that spare time <laughs> they've got, uh, clerks, you know, you're, you're on the elliptical, you're like getting that, that exercise, and you're thinking like... Oh, you're playing basketball know. in the highest court in the land. I, oh, how great would that be? You, have you ever gotten to do that? I have never gotten to do that. It is on my it For is on Steve's my birthday, someone... <laughs> I, here, somebody make that happen for Steve. Well, we I, know, I'm know, assuming that would be bucket list material We know someone you. who's clerking this term. We do, and see if she can help you. Hey, seriously. All right, um, so... <laughs> um, so that's no, so. Um, what's going to happen next is it's going to be distributed, and then presume I, I hope someone calls for a response. At which point the government will have thirty days to respond, although they'll probably get an extension. So right. we're, we're either not going to hear anything for a while, or no justice is going to call for a response and it's just going to get denied in a couple weeks. I can tell you that all this stuff will all happen on the same day. Yep, totally yep. true. All right, third. 
Uh, the burn pit case, right? This is the tort suit against military contractors yeah. for the destruction of hazardous materials and open air burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we filed that petition. The, the Fourth Circuit held that this case was barred by the political question doctrine. Um, I'm of the view that there are very hard questions about whether state or federal law ought to govern these disputes, but that the political question doctrine is not the answer. Is this not, does this case not, I know nothing about this. Yeah. Does this implicate the battlefield exception? It does. To the fe, so the combatant activities exception to the Federal Tort yeah, Claims yeah. Act, which doesn't on its terms apply to contractors. Um, and so there right. are a couple of lower court decisions, the D.C. Circuit and Saleh, um, in an opinion joined by Judge Kavanaugh, from which then Judge, now Chief Judge Garland, dissented. Mm. And then uh, Fourth Circuit Judge Wilkinson and Al Shamari, too, arguing that there ought to be federal common law preemption of these kinds of state tort even law if, claims. Even if the exception didn't apply. Right. Then, yeah. uh, that, that judges should infer from that exception oh, I see. a federal state common law not, defense. Yeah, well, I have some sympathy with that view. Uh, that seems like a really important question, but yeah. is it squarely presented by you guys? Um, no. Our, our whole argument, so the Fourth Circuit didn't resolve the case on the federal yeah, common law You're saying law like that's what we should get to. And the and Solicitor General has taken that position before, that these cases should rise and fall on the applicability of that defense, not the political question doctrine. I agree. Okay, I'm um, with you. So we filed that. Uh, the, the respondent's response, which they have not waived, um, is due October 11th. So yeah. that actually could be the next thing that happened. Yeah, well, I could see that one definitely going. All right, but assuming, you know, putting aside me yeah, and does, the Supreme does Court. Anyone, does anyone else have a security-related case? So, uh, you know, there's one obvious national security case already on the court's docket for next term, and there are a couple sort of lurking. So I, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to walk I quickly will. through I'm a gonna, I'm going to sit here in listener mode and take notes. So the most obvious case, um, which is, I think, sort of old-school national security law, which is going to be argued on November 5th, um, it's a case called Virginia Uranium versus Warren. And it's actually a case, Bobby, about the Atomic Energy Act of 1954. By the way, Virginia Uranium sounds like a great name for a character in a, in a song or a novel. Yeah? No? Virginia Uranium. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's a little obvious. Yeah. Secret agent. Yeah. Or it could be a band name. Mm. Mm. All right. So what is this uh, presumably Sorry. corporate entity, Virginia Indeed. Uranium? So what are they the, here's the question presented. Whether the Atomic Energy Act preempts a state law that on its face regulates an activity within its jurisdiction, here uranium mining, but has the purpose and effect of regulating the radiological safety hazards of activities entrusted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, here the milling of uranium and the management of the resulting tailings. So basically the state of Virginia is trying to regulate sort of low-level radioactive byproducts mm -hmm. of this kind of production. It, it sounds like from that framing that it's drawing, it gets to sort of an old turn of the 19th and 20th century distinction between the uh, the mining activity yep. and later on processing of whatever it is exactly. you mine. That's part of it, right? And also whether there's sort of field preemption in the Atomic Energy Act, mm -hmm. such that states can't do anything even if Congress hasn't touched the thing, or whether it's more of a conflict preemption. God, I think this was like part of my 1L moot court. Wow. Uh, we, had some, we had something about this. It had to do with Yucca Mountain and radio, radioactive waste disposal. Oh, sure. I, I can't remember any of this, but I'm sure this is related to that. Wait, when were you 1L? Oh, uh, 94. <laughs> in that <laughs> earlier century, I mean, 1994. You know, my the, my favorite first Slash line. Slash 95, like very recently. Oh, yeah. My favorite first line of a Supreme Court opinion. 
is uh, the first line of Justice O'Connor's majority opinion in New York versus United States. We live in a world full of low-level radioactive waste. (laughs) Well, it's never (laughs) been more true than today. Indeed. All right. Anyway, so that's like the... I don't think anyone's going to lose sleep over that case. No, no, but that's interesting. Right. It's a good Fed court case. And actually, and our mutual friend, Toby Heitens, who is the current Solicitor General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, will be arguing that case on behalf of the state. So... Very cool. Interesting stuff. Um, Really quickly, I mean, I think there's an important immigration detention case, Nielsen versus Preap, that's going to be argued on Wednesday, October 10th. Um, There are a couple of interesting foreign sovereign immunity cases. So JAM versus International Finance Corporation is about whether the International Organizations Immunities Act, which basically affords international organizations similar immunity as that conferred by the FSIA, um, is actually fully in line with the FSIA. Interesting. Um, I wonder how John Bolton feels about that uh, bit of... Uh, extension of sovereignty. Oh, John, John Bolton, that, 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 that hawk, John Bolton. Um, there's a there's a procedural case about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, uh, Sudan versus Harrison. Um, you know, an interesting case that actually isn't a national security case but has real military justice implications is um, Gamble versus the United States, which is about whether the Supreme Court should overrule the separate sovereigns doctrine. Um, separate sovereigns doctrine mm-hmm. allows states and the federal government yeah. to separately prosecute the same person for the same crime. This is, this is like the endlessly having to be explained this to, yep. to non-lawyers answer to the question, wait, how is that not double jeopardy? Separate sovereigns. That's the answer. Well, perhaps, perhaps of some relevance to current events. Yeah. So interestingly enough, there are some Republican senators like by Orrin Hatch who filed an amicus brief saying we should get rid of the separate sovereigns doctrine. You're kidding me. No way. Now that's really interesting. At are least you in, serious? Yes. Um, and and, and beca- because the federal decision should be controlling. Oh, the federal decision should be. So, so it's not oh. a federal. So, so forget the, you know. Never mind. Uh, well, look, we, the, some, Wait, here's some the parts of the GOP have cast aside any number of familiar GOP principles. I guess federalism should be next. But here's the problem, right? If you want to be a conspiracy theorist, um, why that would matter is because, so normally, thanks to the separate sovereigns doctrine, a presidential pardon does Absolutely. not displace no, right. state prosecutions. No, and as we know, there are some prospective state prosecutions that matter. Hey, it's almost like they're being political. Mm. All right. Um, anyway, and then really quickly, there's um, Tim's versus Indiana, which is about incorporating the excessive fines clause against states. Not a national security case, but an interesting case. Oh, but just a classic case. incorporation case. Indeed. Isn't that so, wait, do you, you probably know the answer to this. How many clauses are left to be decided? Depends on how you count. Um, okay. So here's yeah, the, right, right, right. So, so the short list is... We should, we, we should explain so, like, what we're talking about okay. here. So incorporation. Let's do a quick and dirty for the non-lawyers. Yeah. Con um, Law 101. Indeed. Actually, so, it's more like 301. Yeah, 102. Third month. Yeah, yeah. I, I do it pretty early. Yeah. Um, so incorporation is actually one of the most um, subtly important doctrines in modern con law. Totally. And it's basically the idea that some provision of the 14th Amendment, although there is dispute as to which provision of the 14th Indeed. Amendment, um, takes the Bill of Rights, or at least the first eight amendments in the Bill of Rights, and applies them to state and local governments as well as the federal government. Indeed, because after all, the original language uh, speaks to the federal government. And the it, Supreme Court in 1833 in, in Barron v. City of Baltimore says states are not bound by the Bill of Rights. Exactly. Now, I think it's fair to say that the, the, the current vehicle, the, the common understanding is what this is all about is explaining what various things you find under the hood when you when you open the hood of liberty, or you open the trunk of liberty, what all is in there? Well, there's the whole contested category of unenumerated rights and actually... The enumerated rights that just weren't enumerated as to state, local. Uh, Bobby, it's all canard. 
It's all canard. So here's the and problem. And the reality instead is. So I, I think there's. You should, no, Slaughterhouse was wrong. And yes. Just, I well, think, right. I yeah, think well. that, but no, you say, well, right. And this is the problem. So, 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 so let me just walk through this really quickly. Um, the, the prevailing theory that I think just about everybody today accepts yeah. is that the provision in the 14th Amendment that was meant to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states privileges is the privileges and immunities clause and, 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 um, of, of the 14th Amendment. Wait, no, or no, I had you were right. right. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, Privileges yeah. or immunity. See how quickly I back down because I'm so accustomed no, no, to believing that if you hey, disagree, but I, you were but right. I corrected myself. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, you're right. I'm wrong. Um, oh, i got to treasure this moment. Give, car- me, give me a second. Oh, this is so nice. Okay, anyways. Is that on. the episode title? You were right. I was no, wrong. no, no. It's going to be a birthday thing. All right. um, so, so the privileges or immunities clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, everyone agrees today, is what was meant to do it. In the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, the Supreme Court adopts a preposterously narrow interpretation of the privileges or immunities clause to avoid having this effect that everyone thought it was supposed to have. Um, so, in the 1940s and 50s, when the Supreme Court starts revisiting incorporation, rather than doing it wholesale as would have happened if you had gone through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and as Justice Black argued, you should do through due process, the court gravitates toward Justice Frankfurter's theory of selective incorporation. And rejects total incorporation. Which is stupid. It is stupid. So, but, but back then there was some chance, like they were, gonna, they were saying yes and no here and there. And by the way, friends, this is sort of the wellspring of a lot of substantive due process uh, contestation because the measure they're ostensibly bringing to bear, at least early on, was, well, you know, is this essential to a concept of ordered liberty? All right. this sort of like these fudge phrases that really have no, right. so, so no this, discerning concept. So in the 1940s and 50s, the Supreme Court spends, you know, case after case after case looking at different provisions of the Bill of Rights and saying, well, was this really yeah, important? Yeah, like, like grand jury. I mean, I don't know about that, but this so, other thing, sure. So here's the big list today. So the big list of the remaining unincorporated provisions. Um, the Third Amendment in its entirety, no quartering. Working on that. The Grand Jury Indictment Clause of the Fifth mm-hmm. Amendment. Which was actually affirmatively rejected for incorporation Indeed, on the selective By the Supreme Court. Long ago. Yep. Um, the Vicinage Clause of the Sixth Amendment. Mm. Um, there's one more random provision in the Sixth Amendment that hasn't been incorporated. The Seventh Amendment Right to Jury Trial in Civil Cases in its entirety. And the Excessive Fines Clause of the Eighth Amendment, which is the issue in Tim's. So it's it's like you have like this superpower that you're able just on cue to spout that. Is that something you've been looking at lately or you should know that? That's awesome. All right. This is okay. what I do, buddy. So one of these may get resolved. I, I, I have gotten to this point in my career <laughs> as a complete and total fraud because my memory <laughs> covers up for the fact that I'm not actually any good at this. That is not the case. I think anybody who's ever listened to the show for five minutes knows that. Yeah, but Twitter says case. I'm a partisan hack. So that Well, I mean, I, I didn't say you're not a partisan <laughs> hack. Um, so anyway, so so Tim's is a fun, you know, sort of is a fun incorporation case. So um, the only really obvious national security case there is Virginia Uranium. There's another case about the non-delegation doctrine that could have sort of long-term implications for Ooh. national security law, but only in the sense that it would have implications for all forms of administrative law. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, obviously, as, as we know, there's been a lot of academic movement to refresh and revive and reinvigorate I, the non-delegation I love, doctrine. I love Cass Sunstein's line about the non-delegation doctrine. What is that? It had one good year and 219 bad ones. <laughs> the sick chickens needed it. Yeah, the sick chickens. All right. Um, anyway, so this all starts, the fun starts on Monday um, with the, the first Monday in October. The Supreme Court starts its argument session. The court has granted 38 cases so far. We'll probably get a handful more in the order list that comes out on Thursday. But one of the interesting things going on is the court has also um, taken some of the cases it was supposed to consider on Monday off of the discussion list, which I think, Bobby, is a move designed to sort of punt them down the road 
until whoever oh, I Justice see. Kennedy's successor yeah, is yeah. is confirmed. Trying to trying to get to a, a full complement of nine. Well, right we'll, we'll now, see. and so some folks are like, well, that are they are they divided four four on those cases? And my my suspicion is no, um, because any case granted even this Thursday isn't going to be argued till January at the earliest. By which point, I'm sure we'll have a ninth justice. Um, I think what's more likely is the cases being punted are cases where there are three votes to grant. I see. And it's only fair to let let them have wh- whoever's pushing for the grant, let them have a chance to get that additional vote. Exactly yeah. so. All right, well. So anyway, so Thursday morning before all hell breaks loose at 10 o'clock um, Eastern, there will be an order list at 930. So check that out. And then we'll have the first cases on Monday. And off we go with October term 2018, the first term since 1988 without Justice Kennedy. That's really something. So Supreme Court Landia, there we go. Yep. How about Trump Landia? We've got some Rod Rosenstein action. Uh, There was this uh, crazy leaked story, seems leaked by the White House, someone in the White House trying to undermine Rosenstein by by making it seem like he had for real, as opposed to totally sarcastically, said, let's invoke the 25th Amendment. I'm going to wear oh, a you're wire. Start, oh, you're starting Friday with the New York Times story. Yeah, I, I, yeah. so there's like this hit job on him that seemed designed to sort of set in motion, you know, the idea that, like, this guy is really working against you. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe it's not what happened. But it was kind of a baloney story because it was pretty obvious. And, and certainly everyone involved then said this was just like, you know, sarcastic response to something someone else said. But it set in motion this possibility that he's just about done for. So where are we now with the the Rosenstein watch? Well, wait, then all so, – so Monday morning, so Karen and I, as you know, um, have been looking at – um, potentially moving moving houses within Austin, right? right. They've been looking to upgrade now that number two, no, baby number two is Need here. A little bit of room. So we had literally walked into a house we were looking at at like 10 a.m. Um, Monday when my phone just blew up, right? Rod Rosenstein is resigning. No, Rod Rosenstein is being fired. Well, one of those two things is happening, and here's the memo DOJ is already putting out about who's succeeding him. Wow. Okay. None of that happened. Right. So, what's going on? How do you? What do you attribute all that to? So, I don't know who leaked. Right. But uh, maybe someone. Maybe the same people in the White House were trying to accelerate the story and leaked Rosenstein's imminent apparent departure, creating facts on the ground. And- yes. Um. Something like that. Because clearly they were ready for it. Because DOJ already had a plan. Um. But here it is, Tuesday night, and Rod Rosenstein is still the Deputy Attorney General. But does he or does he not? Is it true or not that he's got some big meeting with Trump coming up? So supposedly, right, Thursday, he's supposed to sit down with the president to have some meeting to clear the air. Um, and there's no, you know, I, I saw a couple stories today suggesting it's not at all obvious that he won't survive that meeting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Look, okay. it, Trump is nothing if not unpredictable. Touche. Yeah. Um, all right. But now but- when he goes, <laughs> when he goes, we've discovered if through this episode – Eventually have to go. Yes. Uh, if he goes while this man's still president, there will be this question of who then succeeds him in his main job and the separate question of who then is supervising the Mueller investigation. And we've been th- through this already, but the many of my friends in the press failed in getting this right on Monday. So let's do this. Let's do this as quickly and succinctly as I can. The critical thing to understand is that Rod Rosenstein right now is wearing two hats. Okay. In hat number one, he is the deputy. He is the Senate-confirmed deputy attorney general of the United States. In hat number two, he is the acting attorney general of the United States on matters for which Attorney General Sessions is recused, to wit, the Russia investigation and the supervision of Special Counsel Mueller. And these two will not necessarily, indeed, will not be most likely succeeded by the same 
person. And that's what's missing from this conversation. And yeah. the reason why is because those are different chains of authority governed by different statutes. So mm -hmm. let's start yeah. with the dad. Yeah, the simple one. Like, so he's got a Actually, day it's job. the harder one. Oh, well, right. It, harder harder <laughs> in terms of who gets it. Yes. Simpler in terms of the politics. Okay. So the DAG, right, when the office of the DAG is vacant, the default, right, there, there are three possible successors. Um, the default is uh, the, the person who's identified in the statute as the first assistant. Um, basically, the DAG, the title is, the, the, I think, the PA, the, P, the, P the P, DAG. The P DAG, the principal The principal deputy. associate deputy. Right, yeah, right, right. Because you're the not P the principal deputy. You're the, you're the principal well, you, <laughs> You've so, lost so here. here. So here's the problem, right? The problem <laughs> is that deputy is part of the original title. Right, right, so, right. So the principal associate deputy attorney general is the number two person to the deputy attorney general. Got it. The P-A-D-A-G, right. the PADAG. Okay, so who's that currently? Ed O'Callaghan. Okay. All right, so so just as a, just to remind folks, when Rachel Brand stepped down as associate attorney general, the number three person in the Justice Department, the person who became the acting associate attorney general was her number two, Jesse Panuccio. Um, and my understanding is that Panuccio is still, still the, the acting, acting. Everybody, associate everybody's attorney general. still the acting, right? Okay. Um, so the moment Rosenstein steps down, right, um, whether he's fired or resigns, here it won't matter. Um, he, is, um, he is automatically succeeded as acting deputy attorney general by Ed O'Callaghan. Okay. All right. Um, the Vacancies Reform Act of 1998 allows the president— if it applies, and we'll get to whether it applies, yep, right. to pick from two other pools of candidates and name one of a member of one of those pools as as the acting DAG in lieu of the first assistant. All right. So so in in the event of no action for whatever reason, it's, Ed just it's, somebody's going to be okay, charged, Ed. and the guy who's the top person within the DAG's office that'd be Ed. Yep. And that's what happened. Running the show. And that's what happened when Rachel, when Rachel Brand right. left. This happens all the time. Yep. But when it doesn't matter. But here it'll matter. Okay. But so, but actually not in the way that everyone thinks. Well, that's it'll the matter on things that are not. It'll, ma it'll actually matter a lot, just not on Mueller. Right. Okay. Um, so the Vacancies Reform Act, and we'll get to whether we'll get to the debate over whether it applies. But assuming for the moment it applies, identifies two other pools from which the president can choose. Okay. The first is any other Senate confirmed office holder in the executive branch. Mm -hmm. So think Betsy DeVos. Think Ryan Zinke. Right. Think so anybody. Anybody. Yeah. Um, um, think Brian Benchowski, right? The the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Criminal Division. Yeah. Anybody. Yeah. Um, as long as they're Senate confirmed. More power to you. They can be the acting DAG for up to 210 days. They can be a non-lawyer. Uh, there's no requirement they be a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the second um, pool is non-Senate confirmed employees of the Justice Department um, who have been, who are in a, a sufficiently senior position. I think it's GS-15. Okay. Um, and have been in the Justice Department for at least 90 days. So you could have senior career lawyers. You could have you know relatively high up political folks who have just you know been there for more than three months. From a Russia investigation perspective, none of this will actually be of interest, right? Yep. Okay. Um. But well, so so mostly not. I want to get to where the one place where there's a little bit of awkwardness. Okay. Um. And that's with regard to the cases Mueller has farmed out. Farmed out to the other U.S. attorneys' yeah, yeah. offices because one the of the DAG guys, normally would be. So this is right. how, listeners, right? The DAG. DOJ has a has a vertical org chart, but it's not strictly vertical. So there are some things that the associate attorney general is specifically responsible for, and there's some things that the deputy attorney general is specifically responsible for. Supervising U.S. attorneys in criminal prosecutions is the heart and is the bread and butter of that, the DAG. Does that run job. through? It runs through criminal division and up to the DAG. Yep, exactly. So, um, so right. So Rosenstein actually is supervising Russia-related stuff 
with both hats. Um, right? That is to say, the Mueller investigation in his hat is acting attorney general, but the stuff like the Michael Cohen stuff. Right. Which was spun, just to be clear for listeners who don't follow this closely, yeah. spun out of the special counsel's office and into an ordinary U.S. attorney's office. That So Rosenstein is also supervising that in his capacity as DAG. DAG, okay. right. So... Um, assuming the Vacancies Reform Act applies, President Trump has three choice, you know, three different pools of people he can pick from: Ed O'Callaghan, any Senate-confirmed person, or a, a list of about, you know, seventy-five, I think, maybe fifty to seventy-five folks at DOJ. Maybe Would a shorter you say list. Say maybe the VRA does not apply. Well, so here's the fight, right? So the fight over the Vacancies Reform Act. OLC has concluded, and I think they're right, that the DOJ succession statute can be read consistently with the VRA, right? So that the, it is, the VRA could apply to a DOJ vacancy in the abstract. I think that's right. Okay. It is not clear that the Vacancies Reform Act applies to a vacancy created by firing. Um, and there are policy – so there's legislative history where Fred Thompson – we're back to you – know, we're back to Fred Thompson, Fred Thompson. – um, <laughs> said, that, said that, yes, it would apply. But the text is ambiguous, and there are policy reasons to actually think it shouldn't because the purpose of the Vacancies Reform Act is to give the president broader discretion right. over how to fill vacancies. Congress might not have wanted to do that if the vacancy was created by, by the president. Yeah. No, I, I, see, I see you on that. All, I think the key the, – what you have to understand is just it's not settled. Right. So if Rosenstein were fired, there would actually be a question about whether you could go the VRA route or whether you just had to go with O'Callaghan. Now, we got a preview. Well, now, hold on. Before we get it, is it possible yeah. – so what if, what if Rosenstein submits his resignation letter and then five minutes later Trump tweets, you're fired? Yeah. Well, so this listen, we had the reverse scenario with um, Shulkin. So this almost got litigated earlier this year when the president um, when the president fired VA Secretary Shulkin. Right. And then Shul- and then and then the White House turned around and tried to say, no, 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 he resigned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, it's what do you reverse. mean he resigned? He is on national television telling everybody he was fired. You fired him. Right, and the, the only reason why that mattered, Bobby, was because on, it, it, it provoked this fight about whether the person who oh, was yeah. named as yeah, acting yeah, secretary, right. who's now the secretary, Secretary Wilkie, was lawfully appointed as acting secretary. So we could have the reverse here, and yet we still have a, a touch. reverse Wilkie. Oh, <laughs> reverse <laughs> Wilkie! Isn't that a dive in the movie Back to School? That's a triple Lindy. Yeah, I don't know, Rodney Dangerfield. All right, anyway, so so listen, you've probably I probably totally lost everybody. Suffice it to say, in Rosenstein's DAG hat, um, the who could replace him depends upon first whether he's fired or resigns, okay, and then second if he's if, if he resigns, the president has lots of options. If he's fired, whether he's willing to accept the litigation risk of naming someone whose appointment might be invalid. Yeah, right, because that would eventually manifest in a setting where it could be contested. Absolutely. And so the the DOJ issued, issued something on – there was something that leaked out on Monday, like DOJ's replacement plan, that had this guy Whitaker, um, who is, I believe, Sessions' chief of staff, taking over as acting DAG. Um, if that's true, if that's the plan – that's the that is the third pool of vacancies reform right. act people. That is non Senate confirmed senior right. DOJ. You've people. been there at least ninety days, right? Um, and if Rosenstein's fired, that would provoke that question. Yeah, it sure would. Okay. So they might really want him to resign. So Rosenstein, there's the Rosenstein dag hat. Um, turns out acting Attorney General Rosenstein is much easier to figure out. Okay. Because the order of succession for the acting Attorney General is actually clearly specified by statute. Right, and it goes to whom? Um, so the, let me just walk through the, the structure. 28 U.S.C. 508B says it goes attorney general, 
then Deputy Attorney General, mm-hmm. then Associate Attorney General. Which used to be Rachel, Rachel Brand, Brand, but and is no longer. And it's so vacant. It's an, and so it's an acting assistant Associate Attorney General, and that drops out of the succession chart. And here's why, right? The re- so so the, the reason why actings aren't in the line of succession, that there's this thing out there that there's no such thing as double actings. Yeah. Um, I think that's too convenient. Like, that's an accurate description. Is it just that they're not Senate confirmed? Um, they're not in the they're not in the line of, they're not in the statutory or regulatory line of succession. Right. So the statute says 508B says Attorney General, Deputy Attorney General, Associate Attorney General, and such other officer, like such other people as the Attorney General may designate. Um, the current designation is a November twenty first, twenty sixteen yes. order from then Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Yeah, we used to talk about this all the time because it changed a few times early on in the the first year of the podcast. Yep. Um, well, the executive order changed. But the AG order hasn't changed. That's the crazy thing. So this is what's weird. The executive order for who comes after the 508 list changed a couple times. And that mattered at the beginning of the Trump administration because there was no one in all the positions on the 508 list. Oh, I see. Okay, so what, what's on the 508 list? So the 508 list is after the Associate Attorney General, it basically names all of the division heads at DOJ um, in order. So the Solicitor General... Is mm-hmm. next, and right. that's so, and just to to spoil right. the punchline, that's why Noel Francisco would be next in line to be acting Attorney General. And then there's a further wrinkle, though. That some have suggested. We'll get to we'll get to, okay, we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Right. So after after um oh, after Solicitor General, the next up is OLC, mm-hmm. the Office of Legal Counsel. Right. After that is, I believe, the Criminal Division. Right. After, no, I'm sorry. After that's the Civil Division. After okay. that's the Criminal Division. After that is wait. Does I, it go in order of establishment? No, because now I'm sorry, I screwed this up already. Solicitor General, OLC, National Security Division. Oh, so definitely not order of right. establishment. Then civil, criminal, and then environment and natural resources. All right. So now most listeners are thinking like, okay, so it'll fall through the spot Rachel previously had. Bacon. It'll fall to Noel. But right. there's a problem with that. So the problem is that Noel used to work for Jones Day. Um, and Jones Day is actively involved in the Mueller investigation because Jones Day is the firm that represents the Trump campaign. And if I'm not mistaken, he's been recusing in Jones Day cases. So he has been recusing. But those are cases where they're actually presented directly in the litigation he's, he's engaged so in. So Noel has drawn a distinction where if Jones Day represents a party adverse to the Supreme Court, he's recusing. Or to the Justice Department. Um, I'm sorry, adverse yeah. to, the, to the Justice Department, yeah. adverse to the United yeah. States. In a case in which the U.S. is a party, he's recusing. If Jones Day is representing an amicus, he's not recusing. Okay, so we don't really know how he would interpret his duties vis-a-vis the Mueller investigation. Right. But so, so listen, is it, but it is, it is clear beyond peradventure that the next in line legally is Noel. Um, for acting attorney general, and that you know whether or not Noel, Noel then would have to decide whether to recuse. If right. he recuses, after him is Steve Engel, who is the assistant attorney, yeah. who is the Senate confirmed assistant attorney general in charge of the Nash, of the Office of Legal Counsel. Okay, so I guess, so there will be a quiz, and so I think a lot of people who don't know these folks are thinking like, all right, so what's the what's the alarm level if Rosenstein's gone and it falls to either Noel or Steve? I, it's not obvious to me. People need to be terribly alarmed in either case. I mean, you never know. Uh, you don't know. You didn't know that Rod Rosenstein was going to play a role in Comey's firing. But um, I don't see either one as the equivalent of, okay, this this person who's the personal aide to Jeff Sessions, et cetera. It's not like that. These are, these are pretty seasoned pros you would have seen in other Republican administrations as well. I think that's right. I, I will say, knowing all three of these people, knowing Rod, knowing Noel, knowing Steve Engel, um, I think the, that Rod is the one who has the longest career of being at least somewhat independent. 
um, right? That he was a U.S. attorney, but actually wasn't otherwise, hasn't been that political. Mm -hmm. right. Whereas I think it is, I don't think Noel or Steve would object to being characterized as folks who have been pretty intimately connected to the Republican political establishment in yeah, Washington. Yeah, I think it's fair. I, th um, I still think that they'd be they'd be fine. Like, I actually would not be too worried about it. And it makes me think that the whole you know f obsession of focus on on Rosenstein it actually misses the big game. The the big game is, is sessions. sessions. No, no. And so so just to to, to not put too fine a point on it, um, what everyone got wrong on Monday was the president by firing Rosenstein would be able to directly would be able to pick whoever controls the Russian investigation. Right. No. The way he does that is not by firing Rosenstein, it's, it's by firing, firing sessions. sessions. Exactly. Because firing sessions means now instead of going through the the 508 list of the order of succession for acting attorney general, if the vacancies reform act applies, see super our conversation, he could name anyone who Senate confirmed or is that on that list of senior DOD people exactly. as that's, directly as acting attorney general. That's right. And they, there wouldn't be any further ifs, ands, or buts. They would supersede Rosenstein, who's still there. That's right. He would no longer be in charge of it. And so so I, I you know, I understand why people like Susan Collins are saying it would be a red line if you fire Rosenstein. Yeah. Um, I don't think, like, my personal alarm bells are much more about Sessions yeah, and than I about think, Rosenstein. And I think that it actually matters in the coverage. Uh, we need people to be really clear about that line so that there's the appropriate level of alarm if uh, Jeff Sessions is precipitously fired for reasons that could really only be understood. Well, you can say what you want about it. I guess people can have all kinds of views, but I think would be best understood as, as an effort to clear the way towards uh, suppressing or at least – uh, dramatically cabining the scope of the investigation. So anyway, I, I think it's a big deal, but I don't think it is the the five alarm fired fire yeah. drill that we all went through on Monday. All right, now big pivot here. Yeah. Let's switch over to cybersecurity land, and um, I will say a little bit. I'll try to keep it short because I think we've actually used up a good chunk of time Indeed. already. That was that was my simple explanation was not was not so short. Well, actually, that was the simple explanation. And 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 in fairness, that's why people are having trouble following this. This is tough yeah. stuff. Just. Uh, Keep it just different hats. Just keep the different yeah. hats yeah. separate in your mind. Exactly. Different chains of succession. All right. On cybersecurity, uh, we actually have a little confusion here as well because two different cybersecurity, uh, and they weren't framed as cybersecurity. They were framed as cyber strategy documents dropped last week. Uh, in reverse order, the national cyber strategy was released by the administration. Um, you know, these national strategy documents, there's only so much you can ask of them to do. They're public documents that speak in generalities. Um, there's a lot of things we could say about it. I'm only going to point out one thing, and it's it's legally inflected. Um, so it's broken down into four pillars. There's a, there's a section or a pillar on uh, protecting the homeland from cyber domain threats. There's a section on protecting our, the, our sort of economic engine, our prosperity from cyber threats. There's a section just devoted to deterrence, if you will. It's called uh, sh uh, Peace Through Strength. And, uh, and then fourth, a section on promoting a free and open internet. Um, what's pretty interesting to me about this is uh, there's a lot of language about international law, and even better than that, the importance of not even law, but norms, international norms in constructing at least a, uh, notional guardrails for nation state behavior in cyberspace. And, and of course, it, it just you can imagine that there are folks like John Bolton who would find that utterly unappealing to include in a national cyber strategy. And they seem either not to have seen it 
not to have engaged in that vetting process, or perhaps just didn't see it as worth fighting because they recognize these documents maybe don't matter that much. But I just want to flag that in a, in a further sign of sort of the fracturing of the unitary executive, there's a whole lot of language in this document about the importance of international law to regulating how states behave and building norms and even talking expressly about norms as such at soft law, which is to say not law, but nonetheless uh, something that creates friction when states violate it. Well, there you go. It's in the national cyber strategy now. Um, meanwhile, the day before yeah. that, yeah, uh, the uh, DOD released the Defense Department cyber strategy for 2018, superseding the 2015 version. Um, and it got a lot of play. It's actually, the, the full document's not public. What we do have is a sort of a six pages of text summary that's actually a vastly easier to read and more sensible document than the National Cyber Strategy. This is really sort of a boiled down uh, set of descriptions of particular things that DOD wants to accomplish in cyberspace. And the attention has focused around the fact that there's a line in it that talks about defending forward in cyberspace, which uh, there are a lot of other phrases that, that people use in describing this sort of thing, but it's it's sort of straddling that line that sometimes is referred to as the uh, the more extreme forms of active defense, where you begin to ask, is this really defense or is this going on the offense on the theory that offense is the best defense? Um, there's not a definition for the phrase in the document that was released to the public, so this has set a lot of people to speculating about it. Um, let me let me read to y'all uh, the key, the two key sentences in the Defense Department uh, document. So first, and this is before you get to Defense Forward, um, we will conduct cyberspace operations to collect intelligence and prepare military cyber capabilities to be used in the event of crisis or conflict. That first sentence describes two types of things they're going to do. One, obviously, intelligence collection. There will be penetration of adversary and other networks, out-of-network penetrations designed to gather intelligence, and that's no surprise whatsoever. Of course, of course, there's going to be that for any number of reasons. The second half of that sentence, to prepare military cyber capabilities to be used in the event of crisis or conflict. Uh, what exactly is that? I think that's best understood as uh, what DOD folks would say is preparation of the battlefield. In, in cyberspace terms, that means in anticipation of the possibility that later on you may have a conflict, and when that time comes, you will wish that you already had access to that particular network, that you were already dwelling on it, that you had the ability to take, uh, take actions that would have disruptive or even destructive effect on that system. You'll wish that you had already set that up in much the same way that in the kinetic space you wish that you had pre-positioned force or already gotten people into the theater in a particular way that would enable you to act quickly when the moment comes. So cyber preparation of the battlefield. Um, the next sentence, after having talked about intel collection and preparation of the battlefield, the next sentence is, we will defend forward to disrupt or halt malicious cyber activity at its source, including activity that falls below the level of armed conflict. And that's what's getting a lot of attention. It's sort of a, uh, it's obviously a gesture towards a more aggressive posture. Um, and there's a lot of context here that makes it crystal clear that there is a larger goal of 
encouraging Cybercom in particular, DOD in general, to be more forward-leaning in its willingness to go out into, say, Russian networks when the Russians are screwing with us in the way that they did in 2016, that you need to clear away the underbrush towards being able to respond. Um, and a lot of people are assuming that the right way to read this is, therefore, all the uh, all the restraints have been removed, the gloves are off, and we're going to cyber war, right? And I think that it's way premature to, to have that view of this um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we don't actually know what level of authority in the chain of command the decision to engage in a defense forward activity would lodge currently. We do know from prior recent reporting that the Obama administration presidential decision directive that, that governed this, or presidential policy directive, PPD 20, which is a classified document, but Snowden leaked it, and it's been much reported on in the news. I'll simply say it's been reported and claimed that it required a lot of interagency vetting for these out-of-network, overseas, non-combat zone intrusions into networks that are probably not actually, in most cases, in, in, at least in some cases, they're not actually in the the uh, adversary country itself. It's the third-party staging servers they're, they're using. So you're in Germany, you're in Poland, or wherever you might be. Um, there was clearly a policy in place, it's been reported, for interagency vetting of that, for diplomatic offsetting equities, legal considerations, you name it. And it's it's, I think, almost conventional wisdom at this point that however that was calibrated, it was it was too frictiony, it was taking too long, and it was perhaps stopping maybe a little bit too many, maybe a lot too many operations. It's been reported that the Trump administration has overridden that policy. We don't know the details of exactly what they replaced it with. We don't know that the authority has been pushed all the way down, for example, to where General Nakasone, the head of uh, Cyber Command and NSA, um, he's got decision-making authority. We don't know where in the chain it is. We do have good reason to believe that the interagency vetting has been gutted, but we actually don't know whether it's been entirely removed. And, and it, it seems likely to me um, it could be the case that it depends, that there's different scenarios that get different rules here. In any event, um, there may yet be more of a procedural check on these sorts of out-of-network defense forward activities uh, than, than we would think at first blush. Uh, I'll simply add also, to tie it back into law more directly, the most recent National Defense Authorization Act, the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1642, um, is entirely devoted towards making clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that Cyber Command is already authorized, if authorization is needed from Congress, it's already authorized by Congress to engage in exactly this sort of activity to disrupt, deter, or, or, or put a stop to cyber activities that are hostile to the United States, even if below the threshold of armed conflict, in the nature of, say, the Russian election interference in 2016. The only catch there, and Steve, I'm interested in what you think about this, mm -hmm. 1642, is a clear sort of AUMF-like, but sub-AUMF levels, AUMF-like grant of authority to carry out certain kinds of operations that I just described, but only if Russia, China, Iran, or North Korea are the sponsoring hostile adversary, uh, which raises an interesting question. So, so <laughs> you, there's no you, doubt you, you can, can use force if it's one of these countries. Well, you can use cyber. It's not necessarily Sorry, force. You can the whole point is you it's can use cyber force. authorities as one of these yeah. countries. And you can engage else, in forward defense. If it's anybody else, come back to us. Well, that's an interesting question. So uh, steel seizures, right? Are we, <laughs> are we by implication, by necessary implication, in a Category 3 situation where when, I don't know, fill in the blank, somebody else does it, um, the United States is— Estonia. 
when uh, those are our friends come on we love the Estonians um, when someone else does it let's say it's let's make it Belarus, Belarus which might be set I don't think they're known for their own capacities but if you're Russia maybe you think alright let's put let's let's cause a little legal friction let's run an operation out of there through them um, and you might you might have lawyers asking the question are we in a steel seizures category three scenario when we try to engage and follow our strategy of defense forward by getting into their network to disrupt their operation as a matter of defending ourselves from their attack? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I suppose this sort of highlights what I think is kind of the perniciousness of, of the Jackson framework and how it, it leads people to think these there there's got to be these clear answers. It must clearly be category three. And that must mean that the executive branch is, is certainly going to lose, except maybe actually it could still win. I think that in this scenario where you're below the threshold of armed conflict, you're not talking about uses of force and armed attack, then I think that as a, as a, if Congress were silent, these would be operations Cybercom could conduct if the president authorized it to so do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's good or bad as a policy matter is not the question. Um, now that Congress has spoken in this one really clear way as to four very specific actors, there's now a little bit of underbrush. And somebody might say, well, maybe that's best read as meaning to only open the door this wide and implicitly bar it to others. Personally, I don't think that's what Congress actually meant to do. I followed that legislation as it cooked very closely. I, I think they were just trying to make clear as to these four, they want there to be no doubt. Sure. I don't. I think they were not meaning to put the president and to put Cyber Command into Category 3 in that situation. We'll see. I mean, we may find out. Yeah, we may never know. <laughs> All right, that's more than you ever needed to know about No, but that's that. helpful stuff. Okay. Um, it's almost like Congress is actually trying to do something like legitimate. I, I think when it comes to the NDAA, you find lots of examples of – the way you'd like it to work kind of across the board. I mean, how about the fact that there is an Authorization Act for the, for the military? Well, yeah. All right. Um, Are you saying that, like, Congress plays chicken with other author- – never mind. I, I'm not even going there. Yeah, yeah. Don't go down the rabbit hole because there's a whole different rabbit hole. Go to this rabbit hole over here. It's military commissions. Come okay, kind of say that before I miss the chance, right? So, <laughs> oh, so, it's too so late. He's down. Trump's, Trump's speech at the GA today, right? I, I did not I, – I did see the bit where he got laughed at. So, so here's the thing. As someone who's been there, my friends, um, it's not actually a joke when they're laughing at you. Oh, yes. No. As opposed to was... laughing with you. No, no. That was not a with you moment. That's no. for sure. No, that was a low moment. All right. Anyway, but I digress. So military commissions. I, mean, I, don't, I don't really want to belabor this. Maybe we'll save it until it actually becomes a thing. Yeah. But interesting development with the, the new judge in the 9-11 case apparently considering the prospect of holding some of the pretrial proceedings. Bobby... At a at a skiff near you, um, yeah, maybe. Hey, come on, come on to Texas, <laughs> or at least a skiff in the DC area. All so, right, yeah, we're not exactly we're not that national capital region. So there are constitutional issues, I think, in both directions here, right? So issues the the, the sort of two big buckets of issues here. Big big bucket of issues number one is once you start having at least some of the proceedings on U.S. soil, you open the door to pretty serious arguments that the full panoply of constitutional protections, insofar as they did not already apply to these trials. Yeah apply. Yeah, and we've talked before about how it's it's kind of mysterious that this is still a question. <laughs> there there have been moments along the way, various pieces of the litigation, that every time the question's been presented and been and actually been ish, been answered, the answer is always, yeah, that, that provision applies. Or or, or more to the point um, or more to the point um, that the um, that the court assumes without deciding that the provision applies um, and then holds that assuming it applies, it's not violated. Right. But this would certainly uh, up the ante on that. Indeed. All right. So so the first thing is, you know, the government might be very resistant to this because of that phenomenon. Yeah. Um, Militating in the other direction, you have the other problem, which is um, 
conduct so right now at Guantanamo, um, pretrial proceedings can be held without the defendants if the, they either voluntarily waive their right to be present or if the court determines that for whatever reason um, they have forfeited their right to be present. Um, it would be physically, physically and legally impossible mm -hmm. for the defendants to be present for any proceeding conducted on U.S. soil given the existing transfer restrictions right. and the fact that the government would never move them to Is a Is it clear that virtual presence can't count? <sighs> It would be a major test of the confrontation clause and of the due process clause yeah. about whether a defendant could participate in pretrial hearings by live video conference. That would be a good exam question. Oh, man. It is. I mean, there's already – so there's movement in the federal rules of criminal procedure to allow for more – like two-way two video conference yeah. stuff. But, you know, it's one thing to sort of have a witness testify through two-way – Teleconference. No, no, but your client. But to have the defendant not in the. What's scary about it, it sounds like kind of reasonable at each little nick along the way towards yeah. the big cut. Yeah. But then you just imagine a future. What if you jump to a future in which people never leave their cell? Like there's well, just a really good video hookup. It's like Judge Dredd. I, I feel like I feel like Judge Dredd. There, there are lots of like the Stallone movie. Yes. There, there are lots of dystopian future movies that that have as a premise, you know, justice dispensed quickly and through. You know, some kind of video situation. So I gotta say, yeah, Judge Dredd, that movie was awful. The comic book, the original <laughs> I comic am book, the law. Was good. yeah, not Stallone's finest. That is a frivolity topic. Stallone movies, Tango and Cash. Tango and Cash is good. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's one of the good ones. A uh, stopper, my mom will shoot. That I don't know. I don't know that one. I'm proud to not know that one. By the way, Karen, I just started watching The Good Cop on Netflix. Uh, yeah. Josh Groban and Tony Danza. Oh. Tony Danza. Yeah. Is this like a? This is not some throwback. This is like this is current legit. This day. is new. This is this is new. Good for him. Oh, I know it's really it's it's. We're only one episode in, but it's an interesting like semi serious, semi funny yeah. like drama. Okay, so. I'm interested. I'm hooked. All right. Anyway, so so, so we'll see what happens. All this just to, just to say the Guantanamo stuff. Like, you know, it's nice that people are trying to think of solutions. But can you imagine the new litigation it would provoke if the government if if everyone agreed to even try that? A new layer in the dip. Well, yeah. since the old layers are all kind of getting stinky, we could well, use some new layers. So is this my chance to say once say again? It. Yeah, no, we got to remind people. Here we are another week without any decision by the Court of Military Commission Review in the Nishiri case. No, okay. Steve, what else are they doing? Uh, no, that's a dead serious question. What else they got going on? Well, listen, on? I mean, okay, so if we're being dead serious. Yeah, like do they have a lot of other stuff? I, mean, have, I know you and I are busy. So the CMCR, the CMCR, for all of them, it's a part-time job. Yeah, okay. But is that not itself a problem? Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems we're beating a dead horse, I know. I mean, I just but so so all this is just to say part of why it's ridiculous that the CMCR is taking this long is because what they say is not going to matter because it's going to go to the oh, DC I know, circuit. I know. I know. All right, I know. Anyway, all right, but well, I digress. See, we need we need like a shorthand for this. See all the prior episodes. See prior episodes about our disdain for how the CMCR doesn't actually get anything done. The, the as I've called it, the misbegotten Court of Military Commission review. Well, it's just certainly in the way. All right. Speaking of things that are misbegotten, should we turn to frivolity? No, because I want to first give a couple of DOJ National Security Division. Oh, updates. I, I, I skipped the NSD update. The, this will be quick because these are kind of. There's nothing funny about any of these cases, but these are curious cases and interesting ones. So first, I'm going to talk about United States versus Ryan Taylor. Ryan Taylor is a soldier. He's at Fort Polk. He's got, and I'm not making this up, he's got some kind of interest in making a chlorine gas bomb. And he goes out into the National what Forest. Was it 1916? 
I mean, this is actually really terrifying, and it actually takes a really terrible turn. So he's out in the woods. He's got a homemade freaking chlorine gas bomb. He sets it off, and he's filming it. So I don't, you know, you kind of, you can't tell much from the the limited materials I looked at, but it it sounds like maybe this is somebody who's got a really kind of like weird fascination. Maybe it's something even scarier than that. But it turns it turns terrible because after after some people come out there to investigate the crime scene, um, of course there's freaking chlorine gas lying around everywhere. Two people suffered career like military service ending injuries from inhaling right. this bastard's chlorine gas. So um, he just got a bit more than 11 years, which I got to say, you know. He's lucky to have gotten just 11 years for that, I'd say. All right, uh, separately, United States, and I'm not going to get the pronunciation right, so I'm going to spell this. This is one of the NSA uh, employee cases. Uh, first name, N-G-H-I-A, last name, Foe. Uh, maybe it's Nagia Foe. Uh, former NSA employee. This is one of two people in recent years who were busted for bringing home their classified materials. This is the one who brought home stuff got it on their own home computer, and it included some of the key, some very important exploits, some malware that NSA uses. This is the person who had an antivirus system on their computer, that said computer, a Kaspersky Labs antivirus system, which of course identifies what? Malware. And then doing what it's supposed to do, ships it off to the mothership, which is in where? Russia. And whether Kaspersky as a corporate entity or people within it wanted Russian intelligence services to have it or whether by dint of being in Russia, Russian intelligence services can simply get it. One or the other, they got it. Um, Foe received a five and a half year sentence today following a guilty plea. For point of reference, uh, Reality Winner, uh, whose disclosures had to do with uh, analytic conclusions, if you will, not not exploits and tools, but an, another sort of comparable case. That's a uh, Foe got three months more than Winter got. Winter was a slightly but comparable sentence, slightly shorter but comparable. We, the third person in this sort of NSA uh, problem triptych, if you will, is Harold Martin. And he pled guilty back in January, but I've not heard anything about the sentencing yet, or if, if there has been one, I missed it. Okay, um, and then last but not least, one that dropped today, uh, Ji Chao Kun, a 27-year-old Chicago citizen, who was a Chinese citizen who's living in Chicago, was arrested today acting as an unregistered and therefore illegal agent of the PRC. And the allegation is that uh, that G was uh, in contact with Ministry of State Security personnel, and his, his job was to identify people who might be recruitable, who might be of interest. And um, he actually had volunteered and, and joined the, the military and the reserves and had made statements denying that he uh, was ever in contact with uh, foreign intelligence officers and now is busted. All right, um, I think that's enough serious stuff. Let's talk about something totally not serious. Baseball playoffs. Baseball, let's go with our major first and then get to the real fun, which is the minor. Uh, the major topic, baseball playoffs. All right, who, who's in, Steve, and who's going to win? All right, so, so let me do it. Who's in? We'll start with who's in. So in the American League, the division champions are the Red Sox. Uh, the Indian, the Windians, the Windians. Um, um, and the Houston Astros. Yeah, of course. Um, and then the wild card is definitely going to be um, the Yankees and the and the A's, although it's not yet settled whether that game will be in the Bronx or at the lovely O.co Coliseum. Oh, boy. Let's stay with the American League here. Would you agree that that's one of the more compelling one-game matchups uh, given the way that the season has gone, yeah, um, the Yankees are starting to come around. The A's have been phenomenal recently. Yep, yep. it's going to be. I mean, 
so so I, I I don't. Someone was talking about how the A's might do a bullpen game where they don't actually have a starting pitcher. They have like each pitcher do like one round, like everybody, one turn through the order. Everybody just goes in there. Well, it's interesting. Like, are all your pitchers actually of the kind that if you just blow it out for one e- one inning, you actually are your best? I, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. But so so that's I mean, obviously Yankees A's is going to be a big deal. Um, man, a Yankees Red Sox division series. Oh my god, that's good TV. You, well, we we know which side the the TV folks. Uh, want want to see this coming out, but I got to say, you know, Indians the Astros don't sleep on that series. The, the Indians have been good. The Astros really showed something by fending off this huge surge by the A's. Yeah. People sleep on the Astros because it's just not a traditional baseball power, but they are they the are defending, defending World champs. champions. Yeah, they are, I think that matters. They are something. an amazing team, and I think they've sort of been in that classic. You know, we're, we're really good. We're the champs, and we're going to turn it on as the season progresses. They turned it on. I think the A's did them a huge favor yeah. by by kind of waking them up early and giving them a little sense of urgency. Yep. Um, so, all right, predictions in the American League. All right, so uh, I think that the, whichever team in the wildcard gets the home uh, field advantage, I think it's going to take so that the one Yankee, game. So the Yankees are two up with five to play, or they're two up in the loss column. So the Yankees have, the, I think, the yeah. edge. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I think I, I think the blush has been off the rose a little bit with the A's of late. Yeah. And, and whereas the, the Hard Yankees to travel across the country and play one game. Yeah, I although mean, the, I do think although, the home although, team will win. I say this, although the Giants went into City Field in 2016 and beat the Mets in the wild. Right, right, you never know. Well, that's why they play the games. Oh, um, or so game. I, I think we're going to get to the Astros and the Red Sox, and it's going to be really fantastic in the in championship series. But, of course, the Astros. Oh, Bobby. All right. Um, <laughs> never mind that the Red Sox are having, like, a historical season. All right. Well, like, with, like, nine or ten more wins. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not that. Actually, right now it's six. It was only six. Yeah, yeah the Red so Sox are one hundred six and fifty one as we record this, and the Astros are one hundred and fifty seven. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, um, National League. The only race, really. I mean, there's. I guess there is the NL Central race between the Brewers and the Cubs. <laughs> Technically, how far back are the Mets? Is it even measurable by science? I mean, there's just a big E next to the Mets. Like, <laughs> they don't show up on the page yeah. anymore. Um, so the Braves have run away with the East, um, and they will be the East Division champions. Um, and I think they are locked in. To the three seed, um, is that right? Three seed? Yeah, I think they're locked into the. Th- uh, no, I'm sorry, they're fighting with the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. So one, there's so a the, lot that we don't know who's going to play right. who. The only real, but the only real drama left is the second wild card slot, um, where the Rockies, who are a game and a half, I mean, the Rockies, I guess, could still catch the Dodgers for the division, um, but if they don't, they're right now um, a half a game behind the Cardinals, tied in the loss column for the second wild card. I just never bet against the Cardinals in yeah, a situation like that. Um, they, year in and year out, they somehow emerge as a playoff team. So the NL Central is going to have three teams. Wouldn't that be something? Um, so Brew Crew. So the Brewers won the division. Uh, I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. Cubs, yeah, the Cubs, Cubs won the division, yeah. and then the Brewers and the Cardinals. All right. So assuming that holds, um, you're looking at a wild card game that is basically the NL Central, Tempest in the Teapot, Brewers, and St. Louis in Milwaukee. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll yep. be a fun game. And then the winner plays the Cubs. So like the the sort of the yeah. NL Central playoff. Yeah, yeah. Over which here. actually that's a fitting result. I think the Cubs end up coming out of that. Um, and then Dodgers Braves, which is a fascinating series. It's like a a veteran team yeah. against like the an really early the, rebuild. An early, well, no, no, the Braves are like. I mean, this is this is their their youth. Oh, project. is this this is this, this is, is year one of the of the. I mean, they've got all these amazing. No, right, but, but aren't they? They were not projected to have, have delivered this early. Well, because right? everyone assumed the Nationals were going to be some. You know, yeah, everyone like. Like, yeah, like, like your friend and mine, Ed Whelan. Ah, well, uh, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> I had to, come on. No, I, I know. Take- uh, you've been good. I appreciate it. Um, so so I, I got to say, like, I just have a hard time viewing any of the National League teams as being a, a serious contender the way that I view the Red Sox, Astros, and Yankees 
to a lesser extent the Indians, um, as so, all being plausible champion caliber teams. I so, mean, the Cubs, I think you have to give them that based on past performance. I mean, the reality is, right, that, that all of the National League playoff teams are separated by less than five games, right? Um, the Cubs have the best record, but only by a yeah. little. Yeah. Um, I think the Cubs are the best team Who, in the bunch. Who's built to win with two to three truly dominant starting pitchers who may have a drop after after yeah. that, but it won't matter so the much. The Cubs. Yeah. So I, so I think I mean I think it's possible we're heading for Cubs Astros or Cubs Yank or Cubs Red Sox. Yeah. Cubs actually, Red, any of those three Cubs Yankees Cubs, Cubs Red Cubs, Sox Red Sox would be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I realize that like you kind of have to be from around here to really be excited about the Astros being yeah. in it. But uh, if I can't have that, if I can't have that, then I'd be equally excited about either the Yankees or the Red Sox yeah. going up against the Cubs. That's historic. Go. All right. So that was our our major frivolity, and of course because we said all of this. None of it will happen. No, exactly, exactly. Somehow the the, the Mets uh, come out of the, the grave and uh, oh yeah, and prevail on that one. All right, uh, our minor frivolity challenge accepted. Friends to the North, sort of pirate movies. Arg, arg. Okay, so the 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 Stephanie tweeted at us saying, uh, you know, I think Kane mutiny, uh, mutiny on the bounty, whatever. Real pirate movies, sure. You and I both had the same reaction. Best pirate movie? Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Come on. <laughs> it's got the, the, dread, the pirate, dread pirate, pirate Roberts. Roberts. Yeah, no, he's, he's swashbuckling. There's also, a, isn't Vicini a uh, not Vicini, um Yeah, isn't Vicini a pirate? Or is he just a... Uh, I think he's just a malefactor. A malefactor. Yeah, a landlubber, really. He didn't seem very comfortable afloat, to be honest. Um, now, Stop so, rhyming, so, and I mean it. When I sent Anybody the, Car- the inevitable Carrie Yule's nodding yeah, gift yeah, yeah. To, uh, to Stephanie, she responded with, that's not a pirate movie. If it's, it's not enough just that there's a pirate character in it. Um, What's a it, pirate movie if not a pirate? Well, she said, she's like, by that measure, then Peter Pan's a pirate movie, which like I say, there's a lot of pirates. And yeah. Captain Hook I mean, is, you know, pretty serious as a pirate. Duh. I mean, is, is Master and Commander a pirate movie? Oh, no, no. That's a <laughs> naval movie, but definitely not, right? There's there's extremely little, if any, appearance of actual piracy because everybody there is a commissioned officer. I, I remember you know? I'm remembering there's, there's a whole bit in the West Wing about the difference between a private uh, between a pirate and a privateer. Oh, yeah? No, it's all about your commission. So, and of course, this goes deep to the heart of my, my scholarly identity as someone who's obsessed over this sovereignty versus non-sovereignty line and who's using force. So, absolutely, Master and Commander, <laughs> these people are all, all right. commissioned. Okay, fine. All right, I've been fine. You know what, Canadian friends? Here's a nominee for a pirate movie, The Martian. The Martian. Because there's a whole bit where Matt Damon's character explains why, under, the interna- under international law, he's a pirate. Because he's taking control of another of, of property that over which no the, one was able in to in the international in, commons in, the, he, in international waters. Right. He's taking control of property over which the original property holder was not in a position to give consent. So this gets to something that I think Stephanie was getting at, which is why Stephanie, I super appreciated the way you you engaged me on this. Gets to the question of what is it that it's just like boy bands, which is my favorite what topic. Makes it a pirate movie? What makes it a what what is that hidden deeper meaning? And it can't be some. Ha- I think it goes without saying that it ain't a happy go lucky, family friendly, fun little story. That is somehow inconsistent with it being a pirate. So Pirates Arr. of Penzance, a, a very eighties film. There's, a, there's pirates Modern in the Major title. General. Wait, yeah, a very eighties film. It was seventies. It's a play. No, no, no. I'm talking about the eighties film with like isn't it like Christy McNichols? Anyways, it's like I am straight the out of model of a modern major general. That uh, see, we got in the show. You tunes. got it. You got it in the show too. Um, by the way, kudos to those of y'all who who said we need to do a whole episode as a musical. Like it's like it's and, Buffy the and, Vampire and Slayer. And boo to whoever said I don't ever want to hear Steve singing again. You know <laughs> they're, what? They're gonna find, hear it. Find another podcast. All right. Oh, uh, 
you know, we may we may have to do the musical at some point. Not tonight, however. Um, what do you think the necessary condition is to make it a pirate movie? Is it enough that there's a, a major character, not a minor character, but a major Who is character? a pirate? Is that it? That can't be enough. Listen, I just want to talk about The Princess Bride more because someone, <laughs> someone on this podcast flubbed a line from The Princess Bride earlier today. I flub lines all the time. Well, that's true. So just uh, yeah, friends, uh, line. Um, we were passing each other in the hallway as, as happens from time to time. And I was going in the wrong direction because Bobby was actually being responsible and going to our appointments committee meeting. And I was passing the appointments committee meeting so I could go get yelled at by our friends in the Federal Society for an hour about stare decisis. After I thought Janice. you got yelled at by the Cato Institute. Well, Ilya Shapiro was the, the speaker, but it was a federal society event. Yeah, well, um, but, but by that measure, you're the FedSoc guy, too. I am not the FedSoc guy. I know you're not. I'm teasing okay. you. Anyway, but so um, Bobby said, uh, have fun storming the castle. Which um, I thought was pretty good. And, and I said, think they'll make it? And I knew, I could picture the scene, so, so you know... They're in the doorway, they're watching him, and they mumble without without looking away. And what did I say? I don't remember what you said. It, but it wasn't the line it, from the it, movie. It wasn't, it would take a miracle. I think I said, like, not a chance, right? Not, you said not a chance. I was like, yeah. it'll take, Bobby, it'll take a miracle. I know, so then Steve dressed me down, like, in front of all the all the one else. Yep. How dare, <laughs> Dean Chesney, how could you? I felt like I just had let you down. By the way, is that the episode title, It Would Take a Miracle? It Would Take a Miracle? I'm still kind of attached to making sure everybody knows it's your birthday. Yeah. Speaking of which, as an early gift to you, let's end this so you can get home. Ah. And 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 not do shots at midnight. And not please. <laughs> no, you know what's you know what's more like at midnight I'll either be sad to sleep or I'll be up with a bit with a, a three month old screaming baby. And you know what? Either way, that to me that sounds like success. All right, so I am I am the soon to be thirty nine year old Steve Vladek at Steve underscore Vladek. He's the much older Slightly older, Bobby Chesney at Bobby Chesney. You're kinda of dating me by calling me out on the on the one L year, right? I did call you out a little I'm, bit. I'm forty seven. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a solid age. I you like look it. a day over forty-one. Thank you. You're welcome. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I made the mistake of growing out my my beard. Oh, I'm curious. While yeah. we were uh, while so, we were uh, away, got for some gray weeks. in there. Because you don't have. I'm looking at you. Don't have any gray. That I do. I can see. You can. You, if you look hard enough, you can find some. But man, the beard. The beard's got the beard goes first. You have a hard time finding any brown hair. Let me just say that, like I've I've done it a few times in recent years, and I'm like, yeah, no, we're not we're not doing we're that. not there yet. We're not doing that. Anyway, we are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, everybody, just keep your heads about you. It's not the happiest time, but but be respectful to people. That's right. Stay safe out there. Adios.